We are welcoming June this week and all that comes with it. Mild weather, the end of the school year, wedding season, and pride festivities. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. If you squint, you can imagine that this is in fact what Troy looked like back in its days of industrial glory. We'll discuss Governor Andrew Cuomo's refusal to release records related to his $5.1 million book deal. I feel like this is a story I've written about 20 times over the years in some way, shape, or form. We'll hear about what it's like inside the new Amazon Fulfillment Center in Skodak. A fulfillment center is basically a warehouse on steroids. And we'll learn about the return of the Papskini Island Nature Preserve to the Stockbridge-Munsee Band of Mohican Indians. Tour Tribe is one of the most important historical sites in our homelands. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here now once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler. Let's go over the top headlines and we'll start with coronavirus. The totals, the positivity rate, they're all getting lower. Can you give us a summary? They're getting lower as they are across the state. Governor Cuomo this week uh, said that the the state's seven-day positivity rate is down at 064 which is uh, a new low, uh, the lowest in the country this week, as the governor noted. But closer to home, there was very bad news. In one day, our Bethany Bump reported there were four more fatalities, one in each of the capital region's um, four core counties. The, the reported ages, one of the four wasn't known, but you know, ranged from 50 to 75. And We are, of course, continuing to hear about people who are battling the knock-on effects of COVID even even months later. So as everything opens up, it's a reminder that this story is very much not over. It's not over for those who have suffered from COVID, and it's not over um, in terms of new infections because, of course, the state's vaccination rate is amping up, but it's not yet where it needs to be. Now, staying with Cuomo for a minute here, he's got a couple of news items that we've covered this week, including a high-priced fundraiser, which might indicate another run in 2022, and uh, a taxpayer-footed bill for the nursing home probe. Can you tell us more about those things? Yes. To take those one by one, Chris Bragg, who wrote about both of these issues uh, in our fine publication, noted that an invitation for what the governor's campaign is describing as a summer reception that's going to take place on June 29th somewhere in New York City comes with a price tag of $10,000 for an individual. Or, um, Jess, if you and I wanted to go, it would only be $15,000 for two. It's an it's an indication that the governor, you know, continues to say that he is going to uh, run for re-election. But of course, it's worth remembering that that campaign funds can be used 
uh, in the event of uh, legal expenses, which which leads us, as we've seen, for example, in the, the case of Joe Bruno, the former Senate Republican leader who was able to draw on not only contributions from supporters, but also his, his own campaign fund to support his legal efforts. Uh, and of course, uh, Joe Bruno was ultimately recompensed after he was acquitted after facing two federal corruption trials. But that might be getting ahead of ourselves in Cuomo's case. Um, what is not getting ahead of ourselves is the fact that taxpayers will be on the hook for up to $2.5 million at this point in legal bills that the executive chamber is dealing with, um, resulting from the federal investigation into Cuomo's handling of COVID deaths in nursing homes and the stonewalling, the suppression of data uh, reflecting the scope of the calamity in nursing homes. This is, of course, you know, it's state law when there's a when there's an investigation that involves one's public duty, whether you you are, you know, a, a low level uh, staffer or the governor or um, in this case, lots of Cuomo um, aides, you know, taxpayers um, pick up the legal bill. The legal bill here for the uh, the firm Morvillo Abramowitz is um, rather pricey. Elkin Abramowitz, who's a partner at the firm, is going to get um, more than $900 an hour, which is described as a discounted, significantly discounted rate from the firm's usual price tag. Obviously, it's uh, drawn a lot of criticism from those who point out that Cuomo has you know, stands to make more than $5 million from American Crisis's COVID memoir, the taxpayers are going to be on the hook for uh, his legal defense in this criminal probe, or potential in this federal probe, I should say. It's not not yet um, identified as a criminal probe. Now, you did briefly mention American Crisis there. Uh, we will have more from Chris Bragg coming up later in the show on that very topic. But let's go back to headlines here. Uh, and a former police officer in Amsterdam who is black is alleging a racist and hostile workplace in a lawsuit. Uh, reporter Paul Nelson was on that. Can you tell us more about that? Right. Alan Drake was a 12-year veteran of the uh, Amsterdam police force, and he says in a newly filed federal lawsuit that he endured um, hostility, that he was scapegoated for um, anything that went wrong in the department, that he was referred to as hot chocolate, and that um, he was subjected to displays of you know, white supremacist iconography, neo-Nazi symbols, you name it. Amsterdam is certainly a gritty city that is definitely up against it. There have been allegations that white supremacist organizations are active in that region, which is, of course, just west of Albany. It's very, uh, very disturbing, obviously. And Drake says that he got very little in the way of support, not only from the police force, but also from uh, city leaders up to and including the mayor. All right. More on that on timesunion.com. The Canadian border moving north, uh, still closed, but uh, our senior senator and Senate majority leader, Chuck Schumer, was up in the region this week, and he talked about feeling kind of positive that that might change soon. Can you tell us more? Chuck Schumer said that he was beginning to see some progress, um, uh, at least on the part of average Canadian citizens who want to see the border reopened. 
that would be significant because it is thought that the feelings of the general public who are resistant to seeing the border um, opened until COVID has receded even further um, are seen as being key, especially because Canada is coming into a political season in the fall. Obviously, anybody who has ever um, vacationed in Canada would like to see the border opened up again. Um, along, uh, you know, in the North Country and and in the West, it's it's obviously a huge blow to the tourist economy that um, goods and services as well as visitors are not flowing back and forth. It's going to continue to be an issue until you know we can uh, we can all go back up to Montreal again. That would be fun. I love the food up there. All right, one final topic here. If you are Happening to find yourself in downtown Troy this week, you might mistakenly think you've been transported back in time. What's going on down there? The filming of HBO's The Gilded Age uh, continues and is, in fact, um, ramping up, including night shoots that are drawing scores of, uh, of local folks to eyeball just how much um, Troy's city center has been remade. You know, uh, dirt has gone down on the streets. You're seeing new shop fronts uh, advertising uh, businesses that uh, one would expect to see 130, 140 years ago. It's it's a remarkable transformation. And Troy residents and residents from across the capital region are really are really kind of getting into it. It's it's remarkable to see any movie filmed in your in your community the level of effort that goes into these productions is is really something but the idea that this is a chance to see of course it's supposed to be new york city not troy but if you squint you can imagine that this is in fact what troy looked like back in its days of industrial glory now we have some awesome pictures up on timesunion.com check them out casey thank you so much for joining us we will check back in with you next week jess good talking to you As always, you can read more about all the stories and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Tax records released last month show that Governor Andrew Cuomo will earn $5.1 million for American Crisis. That's the book he penned last year at the height of his popularity. Since then, questions have arisen about who helped him write the book, namely his staffers, and whether their participation was in violation of state ethics laws. Ongoing investigations are looking into it. Times Union reporter Chris Bragg, however, has been digging into the details since the tax records came out. And this week, the governor's office denied his multiple requests for public information related to the book. I spoke to him to learn more about his investigation. You know, the headline kind of does the heavy lifting here. It, it says a lot. It says Cuomo refuses to release records related to his American Crisis book. Can you tell me more specifically, what did you find in this story? Yeah, I, I feel like this is a story I've written about 20 times over the years in some way, shape or form, um, sort of reflective of uh, the administration's attitude towards providing public records, basically finding various reasons within the law to not provide records that are generally assumed to be public and, and uh, accessible by people like reporters and others. So I, I asked for a few different things related to Governor Cuomo's book. 
Uh, it re was recently revealed he earned over $5 million to write that. Um, and there are questions about him using government staff to write the book. I asked for timesheets showing the work hours of a couple of high-ranking aides that did work on the book that would show whether they volunteered or not uh, during appropriate times for that. The other two things I asked for were um, related to the approval of the book. So when Cuomo sought approval from the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, the state ethics regulator, he had to submit a letter asking for that approval. And that was recently provided by Cuomo's office to the media, but they're refusing to provide uh, any other documents as part of that approval process. And they're also declining to provide any letters that Jacob sent to Cuomo's office, basically asking them questions for any investigations that might have begun because of this uh, book issue. Now, as you said, you've written about this 20 times before. It's not a new issue, but it does speak to the larger issue of, you know, ethics and ethics reform and how the administration has handled that over the years. Can you give us like a little bit of history or background there? Yeah, when, uh, when Cuomo ran for governor first in 2010, he promised to have the most transparent administration in history, something along those lines. I think it quickly became apparent to people who dealt with the administration that that wasn't going to be the case, unless prior governors that, that I don't know about were, were even worse, which is uh, would be a little bit hard to believe. But, um, you know, uh, it often takes a, a year or two to get open records requests filled, difficult to get a straight answer on basic questions from pre the press office. There's a long history of uh, the media complaining about these kinds of practices, and they don't seem to be really changing as Cuomo is in this uh, period of, of kind of scandal and trouble. They only seem to really be uh, increasing at this point. So, What led you to focus in on the book and getting information surrounding the book and, and what may or may not have transpired in the writing of the book? What, what kind of drew you to that? Dating back for many years, back to Joe Bruno uh, and the Sheldon Silver case and the Dean Skelos case, you know, outside income earned by powerful people in Albany has always been um, an issue in terms of whether that conflicts with their government duties. So it's always interesting when, when an elected official earns a large amount, and this is a very large amount at $5 million. I don't think that particular conflict of interest issue is necessarily the main thing here. But there are two investigations going on. One, a federal investigation about the Cuomo administration potentially suppressing uh, information about the number of nursing home deaths as this publishing deal was being finished. You know, the, the point of the book was basically to tout how well Cuomo had done in response to the, to the COVID pandemic. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to federal investigators that that data was suppressed at that time. You know, we'll see whether that results in anything. And then there's also a, an attorney general investigation into Cuomo's use of government staff on the book and whether that's a misuse of government resources for private gain, that's a much more um, simple kind of classic Albany investigation that, um, you know, uh, we'll see how that one proceeds as well. But, um, you know, the, there's a lot of fronts that are interesting in terms of looking at just this book deal and how it came about in the middle of this very uh, busy time for the administration and the book still getting written in, in a couple of months and, and out there to the public anyway. Now, some of the folks that you spoke to about this had some pretty frank reactions. Can you talk about those? 
Uh, well, one of them was from a, a Jacob commissioner, Gary Levine. He uh, has been a bit of an antagonist towards the Cuomo administration, but he's also sought uh, to get information about the book deal. And, you know, you would think that wouldn't be too much of a task as a state ethics commissioner who's responsible for overseeing those kinds of matters. But um, he has had trouble in the same way I had trouble getting additional information about the book deal beyond the very basic things. Um, so he, he thought it was a basically an absurd explanation that the Cuomo administration gave that essentially they're, they're saying that any record that the administration gives to Jacob becomes uh, basically a secret document because Jacob itself is not subject to the open records law, which is interesting for a few reasons. But I think most of all that uh, the Cuomo administration recently released a document to the media that fell into that exact classification. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of consistency in terms of how they're uh, applying the uh, the open records law, which is not exactly something new either. So what's next? <clears throat> You're reporting on it. You've gotten all of these kind of, I guess, stone walls or dead ends. What comes next for you reporting on this? Um, you know, there, there are definitely more um, stone walls to come, I think, in terms of other things I'm pursuing. In my opinion, those things, uh, like I said, it can be a little bit of a broken record to keep writing about them. But uh, I think it's important to, you know, put the information out there if they're going to suppress information in that way, even though um, it's not as interesting, probably a story as actually getting the information and writing an article. It, it does hold them accountable and apply some pressure. Um, you know, there, but there are a bunch of other things going on. I, I've been writing a lot about the State Ethics Commission and how it's handling various things related to Cuomo. There's a really interesting dynamic there right now on the commission with people uh, pushing back more against the governor than they typically have. So I think I have some things in the works related to, to all that that's coming in the next few days. Well, that is exciting. I can't wait. And we'll probably have you back on the podcast to talk about those things as well. All right. Sounds good. After the break. What's it like inside the massive Amazon fulfillment facility in Skodak? One of our reporters went inside. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Amazon opened its first upstate New York fulfillment center in Skodak last fall. The one million square foot facility is designed to employ a thousand workers who pack and ship items to customers across the region. Reporter Rick Carlin got the rare chance to tour the center this week, and I wanted to hear all about it. 
you had a very unique opportunity in that you were able to tour the Amazon Fulfillment Facility, the new one in the area. So tell me all about it. Yes, it's in, in Skodak, New York, in Rensselaer County. It's right off of I-90, which is a key point. A fulfillment center is basically a warehouse on steroids, as it was described to me. They get, they receive, and hold all sorts of items that Amazon buyers are going to buy and which will then be shipped out to the local warehouses, uh, usually in those little blue vans that we're seeing all the time. This particular warehouse has some specifications. For instance, they don't handle clothing items and they only handle items up to 50 pounds. Uh, Some of the things they have are Instapots, uh, air fryers, uh, flat screens, uh, Playstations, any number of things, bags of dog food, small rugs, it goes on and on. When you first went in there, tell me, was that your impression? Were you like, wow, this is a warehouse on steroids? It's just a big, open, cavernous room, a a big, massive room that you could fit multiple football fields in. It's probably 40 feet high. Uh, There are windows around the top, but no windows on the sides. And there are these massive shelves, these metal shelves like you see in, in the Costco BJ type stores. But they just go all the way up to the ceiling. And there are people driving around these sort of high-tech hydrogen-powered forklifts. And they go back and forth in these shelves all day. They pick items off of there. Then they bring them down to where they're boxed and shipped out. There's a certain logic to it. Sure, I can imagine so. Now, yeah. you talked a lot about the security, obviously, how yeah. it's a really like tightly controlled, uh, uh-huh. you know, video cameras and, you know, closed circuit TV yeah. and all that stuff. Um, but what about some of the other kind of technical aspects of it? Uh, you had mentioned in your article that robots were involved. Some of the facilities are more robotic than this, but there's a machine, for instance, that will automatically custom make the box that you need. So there are all these piles of cardboard, raw cardboard sitting around with the, you know, with the Amazon logo on it. And you'll get a, the, the, the example they gave me, there was a, a roll of carpet that was about, oh, I don't know, five feet long by maybe a foot and a half wide. You know, it was rolled up in a tube. Someone simply took a scanner, scanned the carpet. They got the dimensions of the carpet. They pushed a couple buttons on the computer screen. And this machine spits out a custom-made box. Wow. And then the, the, you know, the human work then is you put the carpet in the box, close up the box, and off it goes to the buyer. Uh, there's a lot of that sort of stuff. The forklifts are, are kind of interesting. They're hydrogen-powered. If you're on the forklift, you just push a button, and all of a sudden you're, you're lifted up to the upper shelves, 30 feet up, where you can grab the item you need. You put it on the forklift. Yeah, I was going to say, you said something in your article about the forklift operator being strapped in. Yeah, I, I said, geez, it almost looks like this is space age. These guys had these uh, uh, wires or ropes coming out of their back, right, up to the top of the of the forklift device. And they said, oh, no, that's a, it's a safety harness. Oh, wow. So you, wow. you wear it all day long when you're in the forklift. And so if you go up the 20 feet or the 30 feet, in case you were to fall, the safety harness would catch you. You mentioned, and I've heard, you know, in the media how Amazon has been criticized recently yeah. for its uh, lack of attention to safety protocols. I mean, what 
kind of how did that, that jive that, with what you saw at the facility? Yeah, that's part of what I think the tour was. They're trying to show that, you know, and I think they're honestly trying to address the safety, but they have been criticized. I think a lot of it is it's it's a fast-paced environment, and they expect their pickers and their sorters to to be productive, to, to you know, to maintain a certain pace of work. They also have a 10-hour workday. They work four tens. That's and a long day. It's a long day, and, and, you know, they take breaks and everything, but I think they, they try to keep people very busy. So they have – there was a recent study in the Washington Post, which ironically is, as you probably know, is, is owned by Jeff Bezos, who also started and is the CEO of Amazon. But they did a story citing OSHA figures where the injury rate per – you know, certain man hour worked is is almost twice that of Walmart. Wow. But they've had a high report of injuries and, and I, they didn't get into the type of injuries, but I suspect a lot of it is repetitive stress, you know, from loading boxes all day, stooping over, picking up boxes, picking up, lifting boxes, even if they're only 50 pounds. I, I spoke to one of the workers sitting outside on the picnic tables and they figure they, I think they're told they walk like five or six miles per day. Wow. Uh, one of the things that they wanted to show was the measures they're taking to prevent injuries. For instance, you know, almost everything you do is you log on at a computer station somewhere, right? So if you're a, a sorter or a picker, each time you log on, you have to go through a mandated routine of stretching and calisthenic type activities and, and you know, limbering up exercises. And you have to do that before the computer will let you go to work. They have an aid station where you can get, you know, Tylenol or they'll check you out if you have a, if something starts to ache. So it, it sounds like they're, you know, they're, they're trying. What about COVID safety? Are they taking specific measures yeah. to ensure COVID protocols? Yeah. You know, they opened this one, this, this facility opened during COVID. And one of the things I found interesting was, was they can track your movements and all over the facility, all over the warehouse are these large flat screens and you see yourself on the flat screen from above if you are less than six feet from another person this big red circle will be around you on the flat screen oh boy meaning that you're in the danger zone you're you're too close you're less than six feet from another person so if you step back it will turn yellow and then it turns green when you're in the safe zone more than six feet away from another person now, they say that there's no sanctions or punishment with that. It's just a reminder, you know, when you see yourself there and you're in that red circle, it's like, oh, I forgot. I'm two feet away from this person. I need to step back another four feet. Absolutely. Now, last question. You had mentioned this earlier when you were talking about kind of describing the facility. You said that it could fit in the entirety of Crossgate's mall. I, 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 that's what someone said. I checked it out, but it, it looks like at a million square feet, you could maybe squeeze most of Crossgates in there. To see photos of the inside of the Amazon Fulfillment Center, go to timesunion.com. The 156-acre Papskini Island Nature Preserve lies on the eastern shore of the Hudson River. And as of last month, it's now in the hands of the Stockbridge-Munsee Community Band of Mohican Indians. The area is an important part of the ancestral homelands of the tribe, who until about 400 years ago grew corn and fished sturgeon from the Mahikanatuk, or the Hudson River as we know it today. The tribe turned it over to Killian Van Rensselaer and the Dutch West India Company in 1637. 
Bonnie Hartley is a historic preservation manager for the Stockbridge Muncie. I spoke to her recently about the preserve and the significance of its return to the tribe. What does this land look like? Yes, yeah, so, uh, Papskini Island Nature Preserve is the southern tip of Papskini Island, which was uh, originally fully an island in the Mahikanatuck, or now known as Hudson River Valley or Hudson River. It's now the island itself is attached to the mainland. Now it's been filled in with you know alluvial fills, and so it's um, you know now it's not fully an island. Um, but the northern half of the island is all heavily industrialized and has oil refineries all throughout. But the preserve is the you know remaining place on the island that still retains the essential characteristics of of the island when it was under Sachem Papskini's leadership as a Sachem. You can still walk into the preserve today and still see you know elements of what the island was like during that time period, which was 1630s when the land agreement uh, was signed. But you know, so originally the entire island, and this is of which the preserve is just one portion, the southern tip, had cornfields from what we know. So it's, you know, our ancestors domesticated corn um, and there's still corn growing today. So some people have said that it's the, the oldest continuous cornfields in this in New York state um, that have been, you know, used continuously since ancient Papskini's time. Throughout the island, you see a turtle pond, you have access to the Mahikanatuck or Hudson River. And from that vantage point, especially like from the southern tip of the island, you can really get a sense of the interconnectedness to other Mohican village sites throughout the area. So you can see into Bethlehem, you know, to village sites we had there. Um, it's interconnected with Skodak Island, which is the Mohican place of the council fire, um, to Peebles Island, you know, all of these different, the shore of the river and the islands within it all makes sense really, you know, from viewing it from Papsini Island and imagining, you know, traveling that by the water, you know, it, it's really, you know, remarkable place and really historically significant place to our community. And we consider it a traditional cultural property for the thousands of years of continuous um, occupation on the islands. Um, through the archeology, span you can also see a major use of the, our ancestors who lived there in the village were um, gathering sturgeon um, you see evidence of the sturgeon bones of um, butternut squash being gathered, um, different you know berries and things that were eaten there. Um, you see the hearths where those were prepared. I mean, there's just really rich you know archaeological evidence from the island that we've been able to to learn from and you know and add to our under understanding of the place. So it's to our tribe is one of the most important historical sites in our homelands. Can you go into a little bit more of the history of, of Sachem Papskini and, you know, exactly what he represented and, and kind of the history there? From the archaeology, you know, we, we know that there's continuous Mohicans and Mohican ancestors going there for so many thousands of years. But I guess the name Papskini is, uh, is what's recorded as being the head Sachem at that time who, you know, was responsible for caretaking of all of the, the villages and all the families there at that time and the at contact with the Dutch in the 1600s. So when the land agreement was signed in the 1630s, as far as we're aware, he actually, Sachin Papskini wasn't alive at that time. It was his heirs that were signing the documents. But um, again, just because of his significance as being, you know, he was recorded on the agreement and it was referred to as being Papskini's Island. 
So, I mean, the significance is much larger than any one individual, but there's, you know, again, thousands of years of history and Mohican families and ancestors living there that are, you know, also very important. Uh, I guess it's just the, the name of Papskini has stuck as part of the island, which is, is kind of rare, you know, to have that, the name still retained on the place that he lived. Now, what are the plans for the land now? From what I'm aware of our, our agreement that our tribal council signed is to to keep the land as it is in terms of it being open to the public um, as a nature preserve. And our Department of Cultural Affairs is working on um, signage throughout the island. So interpretive signage about the history under the different trail systems that are there and, you know, more interpretive signage at the entrance, just describing both the history, but also our contemporary, you know, connections to the island and how we, you know, continue today in Wisconsin. We want to enhance the public's understanding of the cultural significance of the island in addition to, you know, the obvious environmental, you know, beauty and everything of the island that people see when they go there. I think what currently is lost is, you know, better interpreting and understanding the Mohican cultural significance and how it still is important to our community today and how meaningful and proud we are to, to have that back, you know, almost 400 years later. That's great. Now, are there other plans for archaeological research to kind of dig more into the history there? Yes, we have a partnership with the New York State Museum. And for the past few summers, we've worked on doing different um, archaeological digs throughout the island um, with their assistance. And a lot of it's been non-invasive work too, because we would we want to leave as much intact as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're working especially on the non-invasive techniques to try to identify, you know, more sites throughout the island, also to assess, you know, which sites are more sensitive. So for example, if we can learn those and those would help with future planning so that we can avoid any disturbance in those areas. But for our historic preservation office, I mean, there's constantly more developments that are planned, like for example, the pipeline E37 that was proposed, which now is suspended at the moment, but there's constantly projects that are planned for just north of the preserve area. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, the significance of the island its history extends beyond the preserve. I mean, it's the entire island. So I think that's something that's on our, our minds as well, you know, is to be aware of, of future projects that might be outside of the boundaries of the land that we are stewarding now. But also, you know, hopefully by, by being having more of a presence there and raising more understanding of the cultural significance, you know, might be helpful in that regard. That's great. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to say about that or about any of the other projects that you have going on? I guess, yeah, I just would hope that people can understand how significant having this one part, you know, the southern tip of the island still be intact versus I think, you know, if you go there and go down the one of the main roads, the American Oil Road, I mean, it's full of oil refineries the entire way. So I think that's why Open Space Institute stepped in when they did to work to preserve that that portion of it. So we're just so grateful that that they did and have worked with us over the years now to get to this point and building a relationship and trust and everything to um, get to this point where it's returned. I think just pointing out that how rare and precious still having that that one area of the island intact is. I think when people look at the, the preserve and just north of it, it might seem like um, a hot spot in the way of development because it might just look like fields or something that would be prime for development. But I hope that we can be part of raising greater appreciation and respect for the immense cultural significance that has always been there. And, um, you know, hope that 
more people beyond our, our own community as well can appreciate the cultural significance of the lands. To read more about the Stockbridge Munsee's acquisition of the Papskany Island Nature Preserve, read reporter Kenneth Crow's articles on timesunion.com. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.